0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. One by one, Jesse's son stood before the prophet. A new king would soon be found. It wasn't the oldest or the strongest chosen on that day. Even still, the giants fell and the nations trembled when they stood in his way. Where others saw a shepherd boy, God saw a king. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, and you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, after uh, taking a break for a few weeks for a series on the family that ended last week on Father's Day, today... Uh, we are jumping back into our study of First and Second Samuel that we started back at the beginning of the year. And, you know, in the books of Samuel, there are really three major characters that we meet along the way. Uh, first up was Samuel himself, the namesake of the book. And Samuel was, in many ways, the last of Israel's judges and the first of Israel's prophets. Uh, Samuel led God's people faithfully from the time he was a little boy until the time he was an old man. Now the second major character that we meet in Samuel is King Saul. After God's people demand a king so that they could be like all the other nations in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the king that they get is Saul. Saul was taller than everybody else. He looked the part of a king and he started out well in his reign, but in the end, Saul's failure to obey God cost him the kingdom. And then today, we meet number three of the three major characters in the book of Samuel. And this character is one of the greatest in all the Bible, and his name is David. And he would go on to become Israel's greatest king. Israel's greatest king until the one that we call the son of David would come. Who would come in his line and would be born in his town. And who would sit on his throne forever and ever. And 1 Samuel 16 is when we first meet David. Let's read about it together. It's found again. 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word today. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screens behind me. First Samuel 16 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, "'Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you.' So Samuel did what the Lord said, and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, "'Do you come peaceably?' And he said, "'Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice.' Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him. For we will not sit down Till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that when he plays it with his hand, when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, Who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found Favor in my sight. And so it was whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, and then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful portion of your word that is open before us today. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who wrote this word, who gave it to us, would speak to our hearts even now that word that we each need to hear. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't know how often you think about this, but there are so many things that we use every single day that we really have no idea how they work. Or maybe there are, you know, some engineers in here that know how a lot of these things work, but I think for most of us, we don't know how a lot of things work, even, even everyday things that we use all the time. I mean, how many of us really know, how does it work when you turn on that light switch and that light bulb starts to provide light, right? Do we know how that really works? Now, th- this past week, I was watching a show on TV uh, about a man who makes his own clocks, And he makes every single part by hand, and then he puts it all together, and it keeps perfect time. Do any of us know how a clock or a watch that we wear on our wrist actually works? I mean, I know there's some wheels in there, and there's a couple of hands, but how does it actually keep the right time all the time? I think there's so many things like that that we use every day, but we just don't know how they work. And here's a question that I want you to think about, and it's actually a much More important question than whether or not you know how clocks work or how light bulbs work. How much do you know about how the God of the universe works? How much do you know about how the God of the universe works? Now, God is infinite. And because he is, we will never get to the bottom of understanding all that he is and all that he does but God has been so gracious in his word he really has shown us in his word a a lot of the ways that he works and in all of the stories of the Bible the stories that we're studying together in first and second Samuel we find some lessons here about the way that our God really works. And so as we walk through this story today in 1 Samuel 16, I want us to discover six lessons together about the way God works. And here's lesson number one, and it's so foundational to understand because it really shapes the way that we need to view the world. Number one, God, our God, is totally in control. Our God is totally in control. In control. Now, to set the scene for all of this, in chapter 15, God tells King Saul for the second time that the kingdom has been taken from him because of his disobedience. And in chapter 15, there's that powerful scene where Samuel delivers that message to Saul. And then Samuel, the prophet of God, turns away from King Saul, begins to walk away. And if you remember, Saul reaches out his hand and and he takes the the, the corner, the edge of uh, Samuel's uh, garment and it tears. And Samuel looks down at that tear, that torn garment, and he said, Saul, in the same way, God has torn the kingdom away from you and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so from that time, we have been waiting to meet this neighbor who is better than King Saul. Even back from chapter 13, we've been waiting to meet this man after God's own heart that God said would take Saul's place. And yet, when chapter 16 opens, Samuel is still in a state of mourning about what had happened with Saul. And of course, To a certain extent, you can understand why. Samuel is not, after all, mourning because his team lost the championship. He is not mourning because his favorite restaurant closed down. Samuel is mourning because the king of God's people that he had anointed ended up uh, being turned out to be a selfish, arrogant, phony. And he was mourning because of what that meant for the people of God. He was mourning over what had become of Saul, who had started out so well. And yet in verse 1, the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, The time for mourning for King Saul is over. I have one more king for you to go and anoint. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And I love that phrase at the end of verse 1. I have provided a king for myself among his sons. There's so much comfort in that. Because the word there, provided, is a word that can also mean seen. God had seen a son among Jesse's sons who would be the king. We're going to talk in a moment about how God could see even the heart of this son who would be king. And long ago, God had chosen him. God had provided this lad to be the king of his people. And this is so encouraging to me because it reminds me that our God is in total control. Yes, Saul disobeyed and turned out to be something of a train wreck, but God knew that that was going to happen. And all along the way, the Lord had planned to send Samuel to this particular house on this particular day to anoint this particular child to become the next king. God's plan would not be stopped because he is sovereign over everything. At the end of this story, when we read about this distressing spirit that came upon Saul and how his servants uh, thought that music might be just the ticket for him. And so think about God's sovereign hand in that part of the story, how out of all of the people in all of Israel, who do they end up asking to come and to play the harp for King Saul to soothe him? This same one who had just been anointed. Because God wanted to take David from the pasture, and bring him into the palace. God wanted to put him in the court of the king. God wanted to begin to present David in the public eye. And because it's what God wanted to do, God was able to make it happen because our God is in control. And that should be an encouragement to all of us on a couple of different levels. First off, when it comes to everything that's happening in the world, Everything that you read about on the news and that you see on TV, we read in the word of God that there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars even as there were this week. And yet of all people in the world, Christians should be the most at peace because we know no matter what happens in the world, we know the one who is sitting on the throne and he has not moved. And when it comes to our own life and to our own families. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, what's going on in your home right now, but I want you to know that God has not forgotten about you, and nothing that has happened to you has taken God by surprise. The God who sent Jesse, or sent Samuel to Jesse's house that day to anoint this king long ago is the same God who was on the throne of the universe at this precise moment. And you and I are securely in the palm of his hand. Our God is in total control. Now, Samuel should have been encouraged by God's command here. He should have been praising God, that God had provided a king for himself. But we see a little bit of the human side of Samuel here in verse 2, because Samuel is scared to death to do what God had called him to do. He said, God, I can't do that. I can't go and anoint another king. If Saul finds out about that, that's treason. He's going he's to kill me. And humanly speaking, of course, we can understand why Samuel felt that way. Kings typically don't take too well to other kings being anointed in their own territory. And that's particularly the case for kings who are starting to lose their grip on sanity like King Saul. And so essentially the Lord gives Samuel an alibi for his journey to Bethlehem, right? He tells him to take an animal with him and to go and make a sacrifice. Now some people will object to that. And they will say it is not right for God to tell Samuel to be deceptive in this regard. But what Samuel said was true. He did go to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice. And he invited the elders of the town and Jesse's family to the sacrifice. He just didn't say all of the reasons why he was going to Bethlehem. And the truth of the matter is God did not have to announce to Saul or to anyone else What he was doing and the reason why he sent his servant to Bethlehem. When Samuel comes to the little town of Bethlehem, the elders of the city are petrified. And maybe they had heard about how Samuel had hacked King Agag to pieces before the Lord. And maybe they thought, I don't know what we've done wrong, but maybe he's coming here with a sword in his hand to hack some of us to death. And so they asked him, do you come in peace? And Samuel said, yes, I've come in peace. I've come to make a sacrifice. And he invited the elders to the sacrifice. He invited Jesse's family, of course. And and you can almost picture it of of Jesse standing there in front of the prophet Samuel. And all of his sons, or seven of his sons, were there beside him. And we don't know how he arranged them. But possibly he arranged them with the oldest uh, right next to him and the tallest next to him. And right on down, stair-stepped on down to the seventh son at the end of the line. But when the prophet Samuel looked at Jesse's family, he didn't really feel like he even needed to inspect any of the other sons. Because when the firstborn caught his eye, he was so struck by him that he thought, surely the search is over. Look at what it says in verse 6. So it was when they came that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He thought, look no further. This is obviously the king right here. And just based off how Samuel reacted and what God says in verse 7 about his height and about his appearance, no doubt Eliab was a physical specimen. He was an Adonis. He was like Brad Pitt and Sylvester Stallone rolled up into one. He probably lettered in four sports at Bethlehem High School. He was voted most likely to succeed and best all around in the yearbook. The girls adored him. The boys all wanted to be him. And he was so striking in his appearance that even the prophet of God, Samuel, who should have known better by now, was taken in by his appearance and said, this has to be the guy. But the Lord's response to Samuel was swift and pointed. Look again at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. The word means I have rejected him. For The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're thinking today about the way God works, and here's the second lesson. We need to take to heart about how God works. God doesn't see things the way we do. And, of course, the way he sees things is right. Now, you really can't help but read this description of Eliab and think about two other characters in the books of Samuel. One that shows up before this and one that shows up after this. Now, probably the first person that comes to your mind when you think about Eliab was the king that was being replaced here, King Saul. Because when we first meet King Saul, over and over, the way that he is described is he was taller than anybody else in Israel from his shoulders upward. In other words, he towered. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He towered above the crowd. He looked like a king. And here we meet Eliab, and he has the same appearance. He's tall, and he's handsome to boot. He looks the part. And then I think we also think about a character that comes into the story a little bit later on, one of David's sons, a a man named Absalom. And Absalom had beautiful, long, flowing hair, just kind of like I do, just long, flowing hair. Every year he would cut it and sell it. He was so taken with himself and his appearance that he probably thought he deserved to be king just based off of that. And he tried to steal the kingdom away from his father, David. You see, people in general, including even prophets of God like Samuel, can get enamored by a person's physical appearance and forget that that has nothing to do with what actually counts, and that is their heart. And that's why God gives this hugely important principle in the latter part of verse 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, what man is impressed by and what God is actually looking for are two different things altogether. Man is impressed by superficiality, but God wants to see real spirituality. Man is impressed by wealth, but God wants to see wisdom. Man is impressed by power, but God wants to see purity. Man is impressed by leadership, but God wants to see love. Man is impressed by ability, but God wants to see authenticity. Man is impressed by height, but God wants to see humility. Man is impressed by resume but God wants to see righteousness. Man is impressed by an attractive figure, but God wants to see an active faith. Man is impressed by someone who wants to make a name for themselves, but God wants to see someone who will live for his name. And so in the church, we need to begin to see the world the way God sees it. We need to stop caring and pursuing the things That impress the world and we need to start valuing the things that God wants to see in our hearts things like love and faith and wisdom purity and humility and so friend when God looks at your heart when God looks at my heart what does he see does he see those things there does he see them growing there or does he not man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart and because he does, Eliab was not his choice to be king. And so next up, Jesse presented his second son named Abinadab. But God spoke to Samuel's heart that I didn't choose him either. And then came the third one and the fourth one, all the way down to the seventh one at the end of the line. But God said no every single time. As one person put it, this is like the Bible version of Cinderella, and the glass slipper of the kingdom does not fit on the feet of any of these seven boys. And so in verse 10, Samuel is a little bit perplexed by this. He, he knows that God has said that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king, and yet he hasn't picked any of them. And so he asked the logical question. He said, you know, uh, buddy, did, did you forget about one of your kids? right? Is everybody here? Are all of your kids here? And then Jesse responds and says, well, actually there is the youngest one, but he is out with the sheep. And the word youngest there is a word that could also be translated smallest. It's as if his dad was saying, well, there is the runt of the litter, but surely he's not the one who is going to be the king. In fact, if you think about it, Jesse was so sure that David was not going to be picked, he didn't even bother to bring him in from the field to even put him in the lineup. And yet what Jesse needed to learn and what so often we need to be reminded of is lesson number three about how God works. God often chooses to use people that we think are the least likely candidates. How often in the Word of God... Does God do this? He delights in doing this. In a culture that really prioritizes the eldest son and would give that son uh, the blessing, would give that son uh, a larger share of the inheritance, how often does God choose to use the younger son? How often does God choose to take somebody with a shady background or somebody from an insignificant family, from a smaller and more insignificant tribe, and yet he raises them up and he uses them to do extraordinary things? God does this all the time. God did it with Jacob. He did it with Joseph. He did it with Rahab. He did it with Gideon. He did it with Ruth. And you come to the New Testament and God just keeps on doing it. Jesus did it with the Folks that he chose to be his disciples, fishermen and tax collectors. And then we come to Saul, who we know as Paul. And God picks him, this one who is an enemy of the church, who is hunting Christians down. And he chooses him to transform him and to turn him into the greatest missionary and church planner who ever lived. God delights in doing this, God specializes. And picking the least likely people and using them to do extraordinary things. And I think that 1 Corinthians 1 tells us why God does it. Paul was writing to this church in the city of Corinth. And he said, just look around you. Look at what you see. Look at who's filming the pews. He says this, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why does God do it? Verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him... You are in Christ Jesus who became for us our wisdom from God, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, listen to this, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So why does God keep on doing this? Why does he keep on seemingly choosing the least likely people to do these things? Because God deserves all the glory and the praise. And God knows how we are wired, and he knows that if he picked the most likely person, at least how we see it, that we would think, well, of course God used that person. I mean, that person has so many talents, that person has so many gifts, and we would just give all of the glory to that person instead of giving that glory to the Lord. And so he chooses the least likely person so that the glory belongs to him. And there's good news in that for us. Because it means that God wants to use and specializes in using ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things if we would give the glory to him. After Samuel realizes that there is another son out in the field, I love the statement of verse 11, the statement of honor, where he says, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he gets here. And then in verse 12, we read the first description of David found in the Bible. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. Now that word ruddy is a word that means to be red or to be fair-skinned. That same description was used of Esau, Jacob's brother, much earlier in the Bible. David is also described here as having bright eyes or even beautiful eyes and also being good-looking And we need to really notice that, that it says that, because while external appearances is not what God chooses based on, notice that David also wasn't ugliness personified. It's not as though having beauty is a disqualifying factor. The truth of the matter, it just doesn't play into it in terms of what God chooses. But David was a good-looking kid with bright eyes, and God said, To Samuel, as he looked up and saw David coming in from the field, he said, arise and anoint him. He is the one. And the anointing itself is described in the simplest of terms in just one verse, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And notice this last part. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. That's lesson number four about the way God works. Everything, everything that God calls us to do, he equips us to do by giving us his Holy Spirit. One thing it's important to remember as we think about this story is that the Holy Spirit worked a little bit differently in the days of the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament and in the age of the church. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to individuals for a certain task, to empower them to do that task. In the book of Judges, Samson, uh, the Spirit of God, comes upon him on multiple occasions to empower him, to deliver God's people. Even earlier in the book of Samuel, the Holy Spirit comes upon King Saul on a number of occasions to empower him uh, to lead God's people into battle. And yet in verse 14, we read that now the Spirit of God departed from King Saul, And what that means is that even though he would go on being king and reigning until his death 15 chapters later, effectively his reign is over at this moment because his empowerment was gone because the Holy Spirit was not with him. And so when we read in verse 13 that the Spirit came upon David, this does not mean that this is like the moment of David's salvation in the way that we think about salvation. It means that God was anointing David with the Spirit, that he was empowering David from this moment on to be the king for God's people. And even though it would be many years before David would actually become king, God is immediately equipping and empowering David by his Spirit to prepare him to do what God had called him to do. And Christian, the same is true with us. Now for us, we live on the other side of Acts chapter 2, where God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church. And now we live in an age when the moment a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is poured out upon them. Romans 8, 9 says that if you don't have the Spirit, then you do not belong to Christ. It means if we have the Spirit, we belong to Christ. It really is that simple. Every Christian has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And think about what a gift he is. The same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you and inside of me. And what that means is I don't know specifically what God may have called you to do. I know he's called all of us to go and make disciples here and everywhere for his glory among the nations. He's called all of us to join in his global mission of lifting up the name of Christ all over the world. And God has given us everything we need to do that through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that he has given to every single child of God. And so again, even though the Spirit functions differently today than in David's day, the principle still remains. Everything God calls us to do, he equips us to do through the Holy Spirit that he has given. Well, in addition to the Spirit of God being taken from Saul, Another one of God's judgments upon Saul because of his sin was what verses 14 and 15 talks about, this evil, or it can be translated distressing, spirit from the Lord, which troubled him. We don't know exactly what this spirit was. Some commentators believe that this was a demon. Some believe that this was an angel who was sent to distress Saul in this way. Either way, we know that the spirit is said to have come From the Lord, either to be sent by God or to be used by God in some way to distress King Saul. Now, we know this is not the only time in the Bible where we read this kind of language. In the book of Job, uh, the Lord allows Satan himself to come upon Job and to afflict him in many ways. Paul in the New Testament talks about a messenger from Satan who has been sent to buffet him. I think the difference here is that unlike in the case with Job and Paul where God is allowing this to happen to sanctify his servants, when it comes to this spirit, this spirit was evidently a form of God's judgment upon King Saul because of his disobedience. And even though Saul has already by this time begun to show some signs of instability. This really marks the beginning of Saul's slow and steady and tragic descent. And from this point to the end of the book, when Saul dies, he is progressively, and we will see this as we go along, he is progressively losing touch with reality. And he is becoming more and more paranoid. He is becoming more and more jealous. He is becoming more and more mentally and emotionally Unstable. And his servants can see that happening. They see that Saul is losing his grip. And it's interesting here that while we see music therapy being used so much today, that we read about essentially music therapy right here in the pages of the Bible. They thought, you know, music could really help you, Saul. Music could be used to soothe you. And so they come up with this plan to find the best harp player in all of Israel. And wouldn't you know it, the best harp player happens to be David verse 18, one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul says, Yes, go and get him. And so here comes David into Saul's court. How ironic it is that the rejected king is now asking himself for the king who would replace him to be brought into his court to minister to him. And so David comes and he stands before Saul, which means he began to serve Saul and minister to Saul. And Saul was taken with David as everyone else was. And so he wrote to David again and asked him to be able to stay a little bit longer And every time this distressing spirit would come upon Saul, David would take his harp and began to play. And this David, who would go on to write about half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms that has been used by God to soothe us and to comfort us and to strengthen us, God used the songs of David to soothe and comfort King Saul as well. And yet the way this chapter ends with the anointed king playing a harp instead of ruling and reigning, really teaches us a fifth lesson that we need to take to heart. God knows precisely how each one of his servants needs to be prepared. One thing it's easy to skip over in this story is what happens right after David is anointed. When Saul calls for David and asks him to come and play his harp for him, did you notice in verse 19 where he is? Saul says, send me David who is With the sheep. So after he was anointed king, after Samuel the prophet went back home, where did David go? He went right back out into the fields to take care of the sheep. And every step of the way, David is faithful to do what God calls him to do. Whether that's out in the fields tending the sheep, whether that's playing a harp for a crazy king, God was using all of these things in David's life to prepare him for what was coming. Out in the pasture, think of how much time David had to bone up on his slingshot. And he would need that in just a little bit, and we'll look at that next week. And as he was out in the pasture, he would also have to fight off the lions and the bears. And in these days, God was teaching David courage. God was teaching David faith. God was teaching David patience as he waited on God's timing. God was teaching David humility. And David was going to need all of these things in order to be the king that God wanted him to be. Friend, I don't know where you find yourself in life right now. Maybe you feel like you're in a holding tank or a waiting place. And you just feel like the Lord has something else for you, that the Lord has something bigger for you that's right around the corner. But friend, if the Lord has you where you are right now, then trust him that he is using this time in your life to prepare you for whatever he has next for you in life. This is your time in the pasture. This is your time playing the harp. And so student, right now, be a faithful student in your schoolwork. Do it with all the excellence that you have. If you're a young adult who maybe has just taken your first job and you're hoping that this job, you won't have to have this job for more than like three more days. Do that job that God has given you as if he is watching because he is. And in these days, God is preparing you for what only he knows he has for you right around the corner because the Lord knows precisely how every one of us needs to be prepared. But you know, ultimately, this story of David's anointing isn't actually about you and me at all. That This really isn't a story about you and me making our way from the pasture to the palace because the truth is there already is a king in the palace. And there already is a king seated on the throne. And he's a far greater king than you and I, and he's a far greater king than David. And that's the final lesson we need to take in today. God's plan was always about Jesus. Everything that God does, including what God is doing here with David, was about sending his son, the one that the Bible said would also be from the stump of Jesse, the one who would come from David's line that would be called David's son and also David's Lord. The one who would be born in David's town of Bethlehem. And so as we read on, as we study David's life in these weeks and months, we need to remember that all of this was about God choosing a son of David who would come, who would be our final, ultimate shepherd king. There's so many threads that we can trace from King David to King Jesus. Just a few of them very quickly. First off, like David, Jesus seemed ordinary. He seemed ordinary. People said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? People said, he's just a carpenter's son. Aren't aren't his brothers right here? Aren't his sisters right here? They thought he was too ordinary to be the Messiah. And he might have been ordinary in their eyes, but really he was extraordinary. Also like David, Jesus was anointed. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the Spirit of God came down and rested upon Jesus like a dove. And in his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus would say these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That's really what the word Christ means. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one the Messiah. He is Jesus, the Christ. And also like David, Jesus was and is a good shepherd. David would write in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And when the Lord came, he applied that language to himself. And in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's the good news of the Bible, isn't it? that our good shepherd came, that he went to that cross, that all of our sin was laid on him, that he paid for it, that he gave his life for the sheep. And then he rose again on the third day, and that now he is seated at God's right hand. And one day every knee will bow to King Jesus, because he isn't just a shepherd, he's also the king. And he isn't just one of the kings in Israel's line, he is the final king, he's in a category all by himself. And that's why in Revelation 19, we get this amazing picture of Jesus riding on a white war horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And this is what we read is written on him. He has a name on his robe and on his thigh. This name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, this chapter begins with Samuel being sent on a secret mission to anoint a king. As Tim Chester points out, that's really something all of us have to do at some point in our life. We have to choose what king we're going to anoint. All of us have a king in our lives. All of us have something right now in our heart that is seated on the throne. Our king might be ourselves and our own desires. Our king might be another person. Our king might be possessions that we have. Our king might be an ideology that we cling to above all else. But all of us has a king. We all have something seated on the throne. And how, how do we choose a king? Do we look at the outward appearance? At what is flashy? At what shines? At what looks the best? If we do that, we're going to end up with a king like Eliab or Saul or Absalom. And that kind of king will disappoint us every single time. No, instead we should look for our king the way God looks, not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. And where can we find a king with a heart like Jesus? He is a holy king. He is a righteous king. He is a merciful king. He is a loving king. He is the only king who died for you and died for me and then rose again on the third day. He is a resurrected king. Now, to be clear, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, whether you or I ever acknowledge that fact. And one day, we all will have to stand before him as king. But in this life, we are given an opportunity to anoint him by faith as the king of our life. And to bow our hearts and to bow our knees before him and to take him as our Lord, And if you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today, to take your horn of oil and to pour it today on the head of Jesus of Nazareth to make him the king of your heart and to put him where he belongs, on the very throne of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you not only that you have given us a king like David. But Father, you have given us the Son of David, the anointed one, the one that you had always planned to send before the foundation of the world, this Son of David, born in Bethlehem, who would come, our shepherd king, who would lay down his life for the sheep, and so, Father, today, for all of those in this room who are called by your name, Lord, would you help us to live, even this week, for the honor and the glory of our King? Father, we bow our knee before him in every moment of every day. That everything we do and say and thank would be a declaration that Jesus is Lord, that he is King. Of my life, of my family, of our church, of this world. And Lord, for anyone here who has not yet bowed their knee to King Jesus, that today they might take him, the anointed one, and turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. That they might become your son and your daughter. a part of your family. Thank you that that invitation is open to us no matter what we've done or where we've been because your king died for us and rose again. In Jesus' name we pray.